Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance physical and mental well-being and encourage community. And by encourage community, what I mean is that I believe that human beings are friendly tribal animals. And when we associate with one another in small enough groups where we know each other by name, or at least by face, we're generally quite cooperative and collaborative. We like hanging out together and doing things together. But at the very same time, it's important for us to know that a very small percentage of us, less than 5%, are avaricious, greedy, dangerous predators. And we must be mindful of those people so that we do not let them rule us, which is what they would very much like to do. In the words of Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Our guest today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is the esteemed physician Jennifer Shin. She's a medical oncologist specializing in breast cancer and palliative care specialty at Massachusetts General Hospital, which many of us have heard of because it's world famous. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Jennifer. Thank you so much, Richard. I'm really, really delighted to be here today. Well, I'm very glad to have you today and on this topic because it is, as I understand it, Breast Cancer Awareness Month, isn't it? That's right. Yep. Every October. And cancer has particular meaning to me for several reasons. One reason is that I've had the privilege of treating women in my psychotherapy practice who are cancer survivors who have had breast cancer. And I've gone through, in one or two cases, five years with them until they were at that five-year stage, which you will uh, tell us about during uh, during the program today, that that's a marker, the five-year uh, point. But the other reason that it's of interest to me is that this year I had an experience and I am now a cancer survivor. Mm. I, um, I had a, a situation where I had a, um, a, what looked like a mole on, on my temple and uh, my dermatologist uh, treated it with uh, liquid uh, nitrogen to, uh, to, to remove it. And after a year of this treatment, I said, you know, it's not going away. I think you better cut it out and send it in for biopsy. And he sent it in for biopsy. And a week later, he handed me a letter and it said, I had metastatic melanoma of the nodular kind. And I immediately went home and looked it up, of course, on Google. And my wife and I are looking at it. And we see that nodular metastatic melanoma is capable of killing you within six weeks. And I'm saying, my gosh, I've already had this for a year. This is, you know, it's quite uh, something. And um, I then went to the hospital to uh, give blood for some tests. And I was sitting there being interviewed for the intake part of the interview. And they had a trainee standing there watching. 
And I see the trainee is looking down at my paperwork, and all of a sudden her face turns ashen white. And I, I, you couldn't miss it. And I said to her, my gosh, what just happened to you? And she said, oh, oh, oh. I said, come on, you can tell me what just happened to you. She said, well, I saw your diagnosis. And I said, yeah, metastatic melanoma. And she said, my aunt just got that diagnosis six weeks ago and she died yesterday. Mm. And so that was my introduction to uh, cancer. Uh, as it turned out, it had a, a positive ending, which there's a good ending to this story, which is that I had a, a sentinel lymphectomy and there was no cancer in the, uh, in the, in the lymph. And then I had a PET-C scan and there was no cancer in my system. So the cancer had not metastasized. So I went back to my surgeon, a fabulous surgeon named Jonathan George at UC Medical School, who did this big slice down the side of my face and didn't even leave me a nice German dueling scar. There's no scar at all. And I said, Jonathan, how is it possible that I had this thing for a year, this metastatic cancer, and I see on Google and this nurse tells me that it can kill you in six weeks. How, how am I still here? And he said, your system created a capsule around the melanoma and prevented it from spreading for the entire time. So that was my, my introduction. But until all those tests came through, of course, and until he did the surgery and until I had the PET scan, I was living with the belief that it was highly likely that I was on my way to another place, to another, to, to wherever we go, if we go somewhere after this. So that's by way of introduction to our topic today, that I have a personal relationship with it and a professional relationship, you know, with your specialty. By the way, folks, what I forgot to tell you as I was telling the story is part of what we're going to be talking about today is Jennifer's book, along with other colleagues. If I can get it up here on the screen. <laughs> there it is. Okay, good. And there's her name on the book. Great. I always like to do that because we're doing it on video as well. So, Jennifer, this book is chock full of important information for anyone who either has breast cancer or who has a family member with breast cancer. And that's why we wanted you on this program, because we want to help you promote the book, because it's so important for the public. Where do we begin? Well, I appreciate that, Richard. And I just want to open with, I can only imagine you're having, you know, like you said, walked alongside your patients who have had a cancer diagnosis. And then to be a patient, as at some point we all are, and to hear those words, cancer, and then the world really stops and just thinking, what does this mean for me? What are the next steps? What does this mean for my mortality and my family and all these things that I can imagine must have been going through your mind? And so I'm so sorry that you've had this experience um, and so relieved, of course, that you've had a happy ending, as you said, in terms of a good scan and a good lymph node biopsy result as well. I can only well, imagine, though, that it was a lot to to be on the other end and, and to have gone through that. In my case, it was a wonderful experience because I had to deal with the fact that I may be what we call dying, and it might be extremely rapidly. 
And I'm pleased to say that I rose to the challenge. And the way I did it was by reminding myself that there really is only now. There really is no future, and there really is no past. Although there is a past and there is a future, but in terms of the present moment, there's only the present moment. And so the way I dealt with my diagnosis was to remind myself constantly that in the present moment, nothing bad was happening to me. I was still going to work. I was still seeing patients. I was still doing my radio program, writing books, being with my family, with my lovely wife. I was still doing all those things. And yes, there was the possibility that I wouldn't wake up tomorrow but we all live with that all our lives anyway, which is the possibility that I that we won't wake up tomorrow. Uh, naturally, we you know the the chance the, in terms of probabilities, the probabilities are less for some and more for some. But in terms of it actually happening, it's something we all live with as part of life. And by reminding myself that at the present moment I was okay. I stayed okay. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, I, I rose to the challenge. The other thing I did, Jennifer, was I made my peace with what we call dying. I simply accepted it, that mm -hmm. this is something that may happen. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to either fear it, I'm not going to necessarily embrace it, I'm simply going to let it be. Because it's part of life. It's, there's life and there's death. And so with that attitude of acceptance and staying in the now, I really was okay all the way. And part of what makes it such a happy ending is that I can look back on it and say, I acted properly. I didn't, I didn't let it harsh my mellow, <laughs> so to speak. Mm -hmm. But, but, th but th I don't say that that's a method for everybody because each of us has to find our own way when we get such a diagnosis. And a woman getting a diagnosis of breast cancer, well, you're going to tell us about that. Yeah. What Tell us about that. What about a, a woman getting a diagnosis of breast cancer? My word. Well, I think, Richard, that you, you're living by example is, is an inspiration. And I think what we strive for, this idea of how do we help somebody once they're given a diagnosis of cancer, live their life still. And I think that I sit in two different worlds. As you mentioned, I'm a breast oncologist here at Mass General, and I'm also one of the palliative care physicians. And I don't know if it's helpful if I open with an introduction to what palliative care is. Um, if you're Very helpful. I think our are. listeners would like to know yeah. what that means, please. Yeah, of course. I'd be happy to start there. Um, you know, I, I should share with my patients when I meet them for the first time and ask them what their understanding is of palliative care, because sometimes people will come to visit me in that clinic. So I see I have two different spaces where I see patients. I'm a breast oncologist um, some days a week, and some days a week I serve uh, patients in this capacity as their palliative care physician. And so what palliative care is, in a nutshell, or the umbrella of what we do is really helping people with their quality of life and to help them live well when they have a serious diagnosis like cancer. It doesn't have to be cancer. I do specialize in cancer-related palliative care. But again, this idea of holistically thinking about quality of life and living well when somebody has a serious diagnosis. And so I think the different components or the different themes of what we do is uh, one big theme of what we do is helping with symptoms, symptoms either related to the cancer or the cancer treatments commonly 
symptoms like fatigue or nausea or shortness of breath, for example. And then another theme of what we do is helping with the distress of, of serious illness or helping coping. Some of the, the themes, Richard, that you're touching upon, how do we help people when this big, big thing like cancer comes into their lives? How do we help them live their life? How do we help them cope and strategize how to live their best life, even as they're also dealing with a cancer diagnosis and maybe the therapies that go along with that? And then I'd say another theme of what we do is helping with decision-making and helping a patient alongside his or her family make the best decisions about their care, um, be it, you know, the next line of the next treatment they might embark on or appointing a healthcare pro- proxy. I think it's about helping a patient make her best decisions and that everything that we do for her really are aligned with what her goals are and that we're really communicating well about what we're doing. And so we're part of her team. And so I'd say in this theme of thinking about quality of life and living well, symptoms, helping with coping and distress, and then helping with decision-making. And so I think in this capacity of being somebody's palliative care doctor, a lot of what we do, Richard, is we strive for for much of what you've described, which is, you know, how do you uh, think about uh, what this cancer diagnosis might mean for you, and yet also really think about how to live fully and have, how to help somebody really live their best life. And and that sounds like even in your um, experience with the melanoma diagnosis that you were able to really think about think about that and, and really, like you said, not have that um, be something that you were so worried about that you couldn't live your life or be with your family or, or have your show. And so th- those are a lot of the things that we work with patients about with throughout their um, time with us in the palliative care clinic. So I sit in these two different clinics and in that clinic for palliative care, I see patients with any cancer diagnosis. And so it's really nice because I have the opportunity to partner with my colleagues to help that focus be also on the palliative care issues that a patient might face. So the palliative care is a second step. The first step would be you as a breast cancer specialist. And so Correct. Well, it's a little interesting. So I, I mean, you need really, a diagnosis before you, you need to, the palliative That's care. Right. And so in my palliative care practice, I see people with any cancer diagnosis. And there are palliative care clinics that specialize in advanced heart failure or kidney diagnosis. You know, there are different clinics. The clinics don't in palliative care are not necessarily only focused on patients with cancer. Uh-huh. At MGH, our clinic is the over the majority of our patients are patients with cancer in the clinic. Now there's palliative care is a specialty that's outpatient, like in the clinic. And then there are many hospitals, most hospitals have palliative care inpatient specialties. So when someone gets admitted to the hospital, palliative care can get consulted. And it's really any any serious illness. It doesn't have to be cancer. In my role at MGH, I happen to see patients who have a cancer diagnosis and get referred to me to really focus on the palliative care needs. So I have a separate clinic where I see patients who are diagnosed with breast cancer and they have early stage or advanced stage illness. And then I have a separate clinic where I I serve in this capacity of being a consultant for other oncologists. So it might be a a patient with lung cancer patient with a colon cancer and they have pain or are really struggling with the diagnosis. And I am the consultant for that team, and they have their own oncologist. So I have two different roles at the cancer yeah. center. So when I was meeting in my psychotherapy practice with women who were diagnosed with breast cancer and were going through treatment, was I doing palliative care in a sense? Yeah. And Richard, that's such a, a wonderful point that you bring up in that palliative care is really considered to be a multidisciplinary specialty. And so I partner, we have uh, nurse practitioners and physicians in our clinic, and we partner with social workers 
counselors, psychotherapists, psychiatrists, you know, anybody to really enhance that person's quality of life. And I think that when we wrote this book, it's written with the chief of both palliative care, Dr. Vicki Jackson and Dr. Dave Ryan, who's our lead and uh, our chief in oncology. And then I blend those worlds. I'm also an oncologist and a palliative care doctor. And so we really thought about how do we create something, a resource for patients and their families when someone's been recently diagnosed with either early stage or later stage breast cancer to help be a guide. You know, it's almost like having a friend where you call up and say, you know, I just had this diagnosis. Tell me what to expect. Tell me what I should ask the doctor. You know, I'm starting on chemotherapy. What do I expect? And what do these drugs mean? Really being like a guide to the, um, the essentials, really. There are so many wonderful books out there, so many wonderful resources on, on the internet. And I think what we hope we're bringing to the table that's new and fresh is this lens of looking at it through the oncologic diagnosis and the cancer, you know, the nuts and bolts of the breast cancer diagnosis, and also this lens of the palliative care issues, you know, for both early and later stage patients. How do we help people feel well while they're on treatment and ask the right questions and make sure they're communicating with their cancer doctors? And so what we hoped is, you know, that this would be a resource for patients and families so that when there is this new diagnosis, they have kind of a, a you know, like almost you know, that if you had a friend that was a breast cancer doc and a palliative care doc, but in a guide so that you had that kind of go-to resource for being able to step through your treatments and feel well and really have that emphasis on your on your quality of life and um, and feeling well each day. Like you said, Richard, you know, there's, there's no time like the now and being able to capitalize and feel well for that moment, that day and the days to come is really of tantamount importance. So let's take it from the very beginning. If we could sort of make believe that I'm a woman, if you don't mind, a big, a very tall one. <laughs> and I'm in your office and you just gave me the diagnosis. We ju you just got my diagnosis, the reports of the studies that you did. And you just told me that I have breast cancer. That's the first I've ever heard it. Okay. What next? What happens next? That's a great question. So I think commonly what ends up happening is that people end up going to see a primary care doctor who gets a screen, a regular mammogram, or they might have a breast lump and they actually are seen by the surgeon. So I often even start off with introducing who I am in that person's care because there's different kinds of breast cancer specialists, as it were. They often come to me already knowing they have a cancer diagnosis. And so um, either their primary care, you know, because they got a mammogram that was ordered or the primary care doctor or practitioner felt a lump or they saw they went to the emergency room because they had a lump, something like that. And so they had a lot of the evaluation and then they come to me and they, they know they have a cancer diagnosis. And there's different specialists who you might see. There's a surgeon and a radiation doctor who you might see, and I'm a medical oncologist. So I'm the doctor that usually gives people treatments that go throughout their body, like things like tamoxifen or pills to block estrogen or treatments like chemotherapy. And so that's the doctor that I am. And I work in conjunction with sometimes the surgeon and the radiation doctor and me. We're part of a team that that someone might see. And you might not need all of our subspecialties, but we partner to take care of you. And so if you were to Go ahead, Richard. Did you, you were well, about to ask yes, the question? Yes. I mean, I'm being the patient now with the breast cancer, and I'm already getting a little overwhelmed because you're talking about so many different kinds of treatment, radiation and pills. And where do we begin, doctor? 
Yeah. Where oh, no, begin? I'm sorry. So just to open, I wouldn't open with speaking to a patient about that, but just to give you yeah. and your audience some frame of how people arrive to me. So when people are in clinic with me, I think the first question I usually ask them is, how are they doing? How are they coping? Is there a question that they have at the top of the mind that they really want to make sure we get to? Because I think what you just mentioned is so important is that people walk into the clinic and they're scared or they're worried or they have a lot of questions at hand. And so part of that work in that first visit is really establishing that relationship with somebody. And so after checking in, I usually do explain that um, at, at MGH, at Mass General, people typically will meet with anywhere from two to three of us. So a surgeon a radiation doctor or myself. So I do actually, in very broad strokes, explain where I fit into that person's care. Um, and it's often helpful to ask people, you know, as I mentioned, what questions they have or, you know, how they, uh, you know, anything that's top of the mind. And then I'll usually go through step-by-step, step, you know, the, the information that I have so that I can check in with that person to see what questions they've had along the way. You know, they've probably had a mammogram and an ultrasound usually, and a biopsy typically. And so I will go through step by step to review those things with her so that I can make sure that she's already, you know, had that information shared with her and that what questions she might have. And so that it helps me with my decision making as well. So I think what you're asking me, Richard, is when somebody comes into the office, you know, how, how does that visit begin? Is, is that right? And what are the things that we start discussing in terms of her care? Yes. I mean, my, I, I'm the person now. We're making believe. Mm. So my question is to you, doctor, mm. can we get rid of what it is I have or am I going to die from it? I'll call you Ms. Miller. You know, Ms. Miller, I, I hear that you're really worried about what this cancer diagnosis means for you. Can I just make sure I understand what question you're asking me so I can make sure I really address it head on? Yes. What I'd like to know is the kind of cancer that I have, is it a kind of cancer that we can get rid of by one mm. of your treatments? Or mm. am, am I starting to make my papers because I'm going to die from it because it's going to go all around my body? Yeah. What, what, and, and what are my chances of making it? And then my next question will be, if we can get rid of it, how are we going to do it? Yes, Ms. Miller, I hear that you have a lot of really important questions about what this cancer means for you, and that one of them is whether it can be taken away or cured. And since this was caught on a mammogram, I'm going to presume this was, a, you know, an early stage, and it's a really early stage cancer, you know, our goal together will be so that we can absolutely reduce your risk of this coming back Um as much as possible, and that our goal together is going to be cure, and that we're going to have different ways that and strategies in which to do this. So I think, if I can just pause from sort of the encounter, I think that's important. A question that that you're asking as a patient, which is setting what the goals of treatment are, right? What can we? What are the bounds of what we can do? And I think, Richard, if you came to me as a, a you know, what we what we commonly see, which is an early stage breast cancer, meaning it was caught on a mammogram, it's usually small and curable, you know, that we can set that frame of reference that's, this, yes, this is something that we can cure and that the strategies, be it surgery and or radiation, with or without radiation and the treatments I have will be to hopefully cure that person. I think in a different conversation, if you're approaching me as somebody that's a, that might have come to medical attention with a, a large breast mass or something that's been spread or what we call stage four or metastatic. I think the answer to the question that you pose, which is, what is the goal of the therapy, is a different answer. Does that make sense? So if someone has a stage four cancer diagnosis, or if it's something that's spread to different parts of the body, our goal is absolutely still 
to help with prolonging and extending someone's life and helping them feel well and live well. However, if something is spread beyond the breast and the lymph nodes, that is not a cancer that we can typically cure or have that tumor sort of stay away. You know, that's something that usually is more of a maintenance in terms of trying to control the disease rather than eradicate or cure it. Does that make sense, Richard? It makes sense in part because I've read your book. So I know that stage one, that if I have stage one, two, or three, there's a good chance you'll be able to treat me. But if I have stage four, there's a good chance that you'll be extending my life, but my life is going to be limited if I understood what I read. Well, you know, so state it's breast cancer therapies have come such a long way so that yes, for stage one, two, and three, the, that we can treat and cure people and that we have a good chance of doing that, you know, for many cancers, especially when people present with earlier stage disease. Even with stage four cancer, one thing to be really clear about is that we can do a lot to really extend people's lives and people can do well for oftentimes many, many years. And, you know, I have patients that I've known in my practice, you know, for even, you know, upwards. It depends because I will say all breast cancer is not the same. There's different subtypes of breast cancer. But for each of those subtypes, we've had such remarkable strides in breast cancer therapies so that people in my practice, I've known them for years and they're living with stage stage four or metastatic breast cancer and living their life and working and, you know, going on vacation, being with their families and doing extraordinarily well. And so although I am really honest about what the bounds of our treatments can do for people with stage four or metastatic cancer, people can do extremely and exceptionally well with the treatments that we have. So a person nowadays with people being made more and more aware of breast cancer and more and more women, I assume, are getting mammograms. And by having something like Breast Cancer Awareness Month to raise the awareness of the general public, which is a massive job, that means that women are getting in earlier and and, rather than in stage four, that you're seeing a a higher percentage of women coming in at one, two, and three. Is that correct? In general, I think that there's a lot of global variation to this. In the United States, where we have access to a lot of resources and mammograms and, you know, women, the uptake for screening mammograms. And and by screening, I mean that you're detecting something on a mammogram before you felt a lump even. Um, That we do, that yes, that many things are earlier stage. Now, in other countries where the uptake of screening mammogram is lower, people more often present with later stage disease. But in the United States, that there there, there are, you know, many, there, there is a lot of awareness and people do often present to medical attention after having something on a screening mammogram. I will say that there are people that get their screening mammograms every year you know, on the dot and still in between mammograms might still present with disease. And so I, I, yes, earlier stage disease and yes, that there are more screen detected mammograms, uh, uh, I should say breast cancers. And at the same time, people can still present to medical attention with later stage disease, even if they were getting their mammograms. Are you suggesting that a woman can get a mammogram on a yearly basis and still come in with stage four? It is possible. It is possible. Is it rare or is it? I would say that that is rare, but it's possible. I mean, does it justify a woman getting a mammogram every nine months instead of every year? 
No, it's a good question, Richard. They've looked at, you know, what's the what's the kind of right frequency of, about getting mammograms? But, you know, yearly mammograms is definitely what the recommendation is. And it, I would say it would be rare for someone to present with, you know, a very late stage disease if they're getting mammograms. It's just that in between mammograms, you know, certainly something can develop. Sometimes I wonder to what extent is testing policy set by you able physicians and to what extent it's set by insurance companies. In other words, they don't want to pay for a mammogram every six months, so they set the policy that it's once a year. For example, in colonoscopy for men over 50, it's often recommended by the doctors once every 10 years, and then it was recommended, it's now recommended once every five years, and maybe if they find a couple of polyps that are benign, they might say every four years. But then I read in the paper once many years ago that they were having, even though nothing was found, they were doing a colonoscopy on the president of the United States every single year. So it occurred to me, maybe we all ought to be getting them every single year in order to get any possibility very early detected, because we also know with colon cancer that the earlier you get, well, with all cancer, the earlier you get there, the better. So it occurred to me that the policy of every five years was being set by the insurance companies. I also know that, for example, when I have basal and cell carcinoma taken off my forehead, there is a limit to how much can be taken off in any one setting. And the little machine that my doctor uses to spray me has a counter on it. And when he gets to a certain number, he says, well, that's all I'm allowed to do today. Even though I might benefit by having five more taken off, I can't have them taken off for another month because that's what the policy of the insurance company is. So that's where my question is coming from with regard to mammograms. And you feel pretty confident that it's science-based, not uh, policy-based. I do. I think your concerns, Richard, are absolutely out there. And this idea of, you know, how do we make the best decisions for our patients using the data that we have, right? We really want to use the data that we have to drive decisions. And I think in this case, you know, annual mammograms really does make sense with, with the information that we have. I think it's always hard, right? I think that um, science is evolving always, right? Data is evolving. And sometimes, uh, you know, there's so many pieces to that puzzle of when we get the data. And so even in screening mammograms, this idea of when to start screening and this idea of, you know, when women are younger, there's more false positives, meaning, you know, there might be something that you detect that may not be a cancer. And so, you know, this idea of how to best screen and how, at what time to best screen women, you know, I think has been an evolving target and different, uh, different bodies of uh, organizations, I should say, make different recommendations. And I think it's really just trying to look at the data and and trying to craft recommendations that make sense um, for a patient. And so really, when a woman is sitting there with her primary care provider, whoever that might be, you know, having that discussion about screening and when to start screening um, is a really important one. And I think that that goes towards many other screening recommendations for prostate cancer, for example. And, and I hear your example, Richard, of, you know, the frustration of what feels to be sometimes like the insurance companies might be having a hand in this. 
I think in the case of mammograms, you know, the, the recommendations to get them yearly does make sense and, and getting them with more frequency is usually not recommended unless they, they find something that they think is probably benign, but they might want a six-month sort of follow-up in the interim. And so in that case, it does make sense. Is there radiation risk involved in having them more often? I think the radiation risks for most imaging procedures are very low. And so, I, you know, I, I would not have that as a concern in terms of, you know, the frequency with which we do the imaging studies. And is early detection of breast cancer highly correlated with socioeconomic status? I think there's so many different drivers that go into um, stage at diagnosis and, um, you know, whether something's earlier stage or later stage and disparities in cancer care, be it socioeconomic or racial um, and financial. And so, yes, I think that that's, uh, there There has been some, uh, there. I think there is some correlation there. Um, and so I think that's why, you know, your message in the beginning of this idea of how do we raise awareness that people are asking their doctors coming in for routine care, right? To get a mammogram ordered, you have to be able to see a primary care provider to help make those recommendations if you're not aware of them and really reinforcing how important that is. Yeah, because I found myself immediately wondering, for example, whether uh, minority groups, people of color uh, are coming in later because of, of uh, either less ability to get mammograms or less awareness of the importance of mammograms. Mm. Yeah. I imagine that I imagine the someone has that data. Yes, yes. No, and I think there's disparities across the spectrum that point to that, that exactly that, including in routine screaming. That's correct. Okay, so let's come back to Miss Miller, who's mm -hmm. sitting in your office, and uh, and uh, she came in with the diagnosis, and she's in uh, let's say uh, stage two uh, uh, breast cancer. And she's looking at you and she's scared, or I'm looking at you as Miss Miller, and I'm scared and I don't know what you're going to tell me. And um, and what's the next step in my treatment? Uh, yeah, Richard, I think this actually um, goes back to what I was saying. And I'm going to actually not yet interview you or act as if you're the patient because it really is hard to kind of predict which direction will go. I okay. will say breast cancer is all not, not all created equal and that they're okay. all, there are, there are different flavors and subtypes of breast cancer. Fair enough. So if you are a stage two and a HER2 positive or triple negative, and I'll define these in a minute, or estrogen yes. receptor positive, HER2 negative, those are like three completely different treatment regimens. And even, you know, the timing of maybe a chemotherapy or surgery really depends on what we call this receptor status of the tumor. And usually in simple terms, if you were my patient, I would say, you know, a breast cancer cell, when we look at it, um, has three different uh, receptors or things on the cell that really define what kind of cancer you have. ER, PR, and HER2. ER stands for estrogen receptor. PR stands for progesterone receptor. And there's also this HER2 receptor. And depending on what, what uh, type of tumor you have, that will help us predict what treatments would be beneficial to you. So for example, Ms. Miller, you have a triple negative tumor, and that means that you do not have estrogen or progesterone receptor or the HER2 receptor. And so the best course of action right now would be to start with chemotherapy prior to going to surgery so that we can really see what the response to therapy has been. You know, So I'll, I'm going to stop there from the patient interaction. But just to share with you, right, that there's different tumors and they, breast cancers, there's different what we call subtypes of breast cancer that really help us 
decide what the best treatment is going to be for you. And so, you know, if Ms. Miller had a stage two triple negative, meaning estrogen, progesterone, receptor HER2 negative, that would be very different than if you were Ms. Miller with a HER2 positive breast cancer. Um, And very different if you were Ms. Miller with a estrogen receptor positive, meaning sensitive to hormones or the estrogen hormone and a HER2 negative tumor. And so that conversation actually with a stage two patient would look actually very different depending on the kind of tumor you had. And I think that you know, like you said, if you are have never had a loved one diagnosed with breast cancer, if you've not had a diagnosis, this idea that breast cancer is all very different types of tumor with different treatments is, is maybe a completely new news to you, right? Yes. And I think what we try to do in this in, in our book, and and you know, there's as I mentioned, so many great resources online, and you know, this idea of just really trying to do that education of when somebody says breast cancer, what does that mean to you, right? And what does that first visit mean? And we walk people through that in the book, you know, what what to walk into that first visit, sort of what questions you might have, what the breast oncologist and the team might review with you as your treatment. What does it mean when you have an estrogen receptor positive tumor? What does it mean when you have a triple negative tumor? What are the things that your doctor might talk to you about, that your team might talk to you about? So I think, Richard, your um, case here is actually a beautiful example of introducing um, you know, why we thought it would be so empowering to be able to create a guide so that when you, Ms. Miller, walk into that room, you, you won't be caught off guard with being like, I don't even actually know what a subtype is or what a receptor is, yes. or, you know, what to ask for. Do I need exactly. other scans? And, you know, you know, is, is, or I definitely need to think that, you know, I'm going to need chemotherapy for sure. And so what we wanted to do is really kind of distill down and um, kind of translate what this is going to look like in in lay people's terms, you know, what that first visit is going to look like, what the treatment recommendations might look like. And then after the visit, this idea of, you know, it's so overwhelming to be in that first visit. I yes. usually say to patients, you and I will both remember this visit because it really becomes, it's so such an important one, you know, that connection you have with your doctor and and that how overwhelming it can be. And so when you leave that visit, how do you have some sort of resource that you can go back to to be like, oh gosh, you know, I think that, you know, she did mention something about, you know, why I might not need scans, you know, I, but I couldn't quite catch that. You know, so we try to have um, in our guide just this idea of how do we answer the common questions and have information there. You know, like I said, as if you had me on speed dial from both the uh, breast oncology yes. and palliative care perspectives. I'm thinking as you're talking that if I were your patient, I would want to be recording every single visit because I'd be afraid that I'd leave and I wouldn't remember so much of this information. I'd want to have it on my phone so I could listen to it with my husband right. or my family and go over it again and again and then yeah. take the information you gave me and look in your book because you're giving, even in this short time, you put out a lot of different information that I had no idea of, that there are mm. so many different kinds and each kind mm-hmm. requires different kind of treatment. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to learn here. There's a lot Great, to learn. A lot and to a, learn. And a lot and, of promise, and, you know, a lot of promise. It's amazing, you know, from, you know, even when I did my training to now, just how, you know, how the treatments have, have just evolved so much to the benefit of patients. It's really been remarkable. So, you know, we really try to touch on, you know, what are the different treatments to think that that we might recommend, why we might recommend them, what the typical side effects are, how to deal with side effects. You know, there's that palliative care piece to the book for, you know, if you even if you have an early stage tumor, there's a lot of palliative care needs that somebody might have. 
have in terms of uh, the side effects you might have from treatment or how to cope with a cancer diagnosis and, and do a lot of what, Richard, I think you were really able to do yourself when you had a diagnosis, which is really how to focus on this piece of how to live well and live in the in the now in many moments. So, um, you know, we try to really have the nuts and bolts of breast cancer therapies and also this idea of how to cope with it, how to really live well and how to feel well. You know, in my case, what I wanted more than anything else is to cut the thing out of my system before mm. it's sent out ambassadors. And so I find myself having the same question when I play a role play with you and be Miss Miller and say to you, I don't understand the reason that you're suggesting chemotherapy mm. before surgery. Yeah. Why don't we just go in there tomorrow and cut it out? I think that's a great question, Richard. So if Ms. Miller was a, a, a person that had an estrogen-sensitive tumor, that's what we would typically do. We would do the uh, we would do surgery first. However, in those two other kinds of tumors I was talking about, the HER2 positive yeah. or the triple negative, we typically for a stage two tumor would do the treatments first. And and your question is is something that I really try to pause when patients ask that question. It's a really good one. They just want it out of them, right? Yeah. And so you know I really want to make sure that I am clear with a woman with me in clinic about why I why we don't recommend that, and to try to explain to people the rationale. So, you know, simply put, I would say, you know, when we recommend the treatments prior to surgery, what that helps us do is that when people go to surgery, we see what impact those treatments have had on the tumor. And there are some instances where the tumor's completely gone away at the time of surgery so that they might have had those treatments. And when the surgeon goes to remove that area, which you still need to have done regardless, even if you have a lot of shrinkage, that when they go to look at that under the microscope, that there may be no tumor left. And that, as an oncologist, helps me make recommendations for after surgery. So that if there's residual tumor, so again, you get chemotherapy and chemo, maybe other treatments that might be targeted to HER2 if you have a HER2 positive tumor. And if you get those treatments before surgery, and then at the time of surgery, what's there helps me determine what treatments you need after. And so that's the rationale for why to do it before. Because if somebody has a complete response, they might need less therapy than in someone that has a lot of tumor that's left after the treatments they had prior to surgery. So it's it's determining the decision to do the chemo before the surgery is determining the treatment after the surgery. Whereas if you just go in and cut away immediately you're left with less information about what to do next? That's right, because now, we don't know how well the tumor responded to those initial therapies. And what about the, the option that that Miss Miller says to you, let's just cut my whole breast off and get rid of everything, no chemo, no nothing, let's just make sure by cutting it all off. You read about that in the papers once in a while where mm. somebody seems, oh, well, actually what you read about more often is a woman says, well, if you if I have it in one breast, cut off the other one also so I make sure I don't get it in both. I'm, you know about that, of course. Mm. Mm -hmm. But I actually know somebody who did that. Uh, but what about that as as an option? Is, is that a, a viable option to just remove the breast totally and not deal with chemo, radiation or anything? You bring up two really important points. One is the mastectomy of the involved breast. And then the other is, you know, this idea of getting what we call a prophylactic mastectomy of the uninvolved breast, yes. presuming that's not involved with cancer. And I'll take the first question um, first, which is Thank this you. idea of if you take off the breast, can you avoid all therapies? 
And again, I think that's an excellent question. And I really pause in that time of a visit to address why other treatments are going to be needed, regardless of what kind of surgery you have. So in the most simple sense, you know, even a tiny tumor is made of billions of cells, right? And so before somebody has a diagnosis of cancer, before you even had the biopsy or even had that mammogram, even if a tumor is small, it's so many billions of cells and a cell might have broken off and could be floating around in somebody's bloodstream or, you know, waiting somewhere else in the body, right? So even if you have a mastectomy to take off the whole breast, including all the known tumor, the treatments that I give somebody as a medical oncologist, either again, pills in some cases, or intravenous therapies like chemotherapies, um, are meant to eradicate those kind of microscopic disease that might be elsewhere in the body. So even if somebody elects for something like a mastectomy, it doesn't address this microscopic disease that might be elsewhere in the body. And so the treatments, if somebody um, needed chemo or if chemotherapy would be recommended to somebody, whether or not somebody has um, the lump removed or the whole breast removed doesn't change those treatment recommendations. Does that make sense, Richard? It makes sense. I'm relating it to my own cancer because I raised the exact same question. I said, how do we know that even though my body built this capsule around the melanoma. How do we know that some ambassadors didn't get sent out and they're already swimming around somewhere in my body? Mm -hmm. And the answer I was given is, well, the first place they would swim to would be the closest lymph. And so that's why we did the sentinel lymphectomy to see if there was anything in the lymph and mm -hmm. there wasn't. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, how sure can we be because we didn't find it in the lymph, that there weren't some swimmers that went elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And the answer I got was 90 to 95%. Well, I said, well, then how can we account for the other 5 or 10%? And that's when they said you do a PET-C scan, mm -hmm. so which we did, which was negative. But what I'm wondering about now, based on what you're saying is, that there's also the possibility that even with the PET-C, some swimmers got away that we didn't account for. Otherwise, you'd be using the PET-C scan on the woman who had the full mastectomy to see if there was anything swimming in her body, and then you would decide whether or not you would do the, af the after-surgery um, chemo or radiation, correct? You know, you bring up some important points, Richard, and I'll, I will say that, you know, certainly melanoma, breast cancer, each different tumor is so different and has its unique approach to both treatment, both locally, like surgery or radiation, and other therapies, like what we call systemic therapies that go throughout your system, like things like chemotherapy or hormone blockade. So each tumor is so different. And so it's, it is hard to compare, for example, like melanoma to breast cancer. Uh -huh. However, I will say, I hear what your question is, which is that you're asking if somebody did a mastectomy and had a PET scan, I think you're referring to the PET CT, PET CT scan, you know, could that help me? It's interesting um, because really a PET scan or a CAT scan or a bone scan, whatever imaging study that, it, you know, if you were asking if you had an imaging study after a mastectomy, it still doesn't help us predict who's going to, to relapse in some way. And so that even if you had a clean PET scan, which we don't routinely do, I will say, but if somebody has a a stage two, HER2 positive or a triple negative breast cancer, we know from large randomized clinical trials that women will benefit from doing those chemotherapies partnered with other therapies often, but these other therapies, regardless of what imaging might show. 
And so even if we did do PET CT scans after or before surgery, and in some cases we might do that, it doesn't mean that people um, then don't need the therapies. We do still know that women, and thankfully in breast cancer, we have so much data, going back to the data question about how do we make decisions for somebody. And because breast cancer is so common, we have so many randomized clinical trials or that high level of evidence where we look at lots of women and say, this woman gets, this group gets it, this group doesn't, you know, in some sort of flip of the coin fashion, what we call a randomized control trial. We have so many of those trials to guide the therapy in women with breast cancer. And that even in a stage two, HER2 positive or triple negative in this case, you know, even if they had a clear scan, it would not mean that they did not need to get therapies. And what percentage of our population, female population, get breast cancer, Jennifer? It's about one in eight or nine women. So it's really common. And it's no Very doubt high. that if you have somebody that you, you know, if you have people in your life, you know, that almost no doubt that you've known somebody, um, whether you realize it or not, that's had a history of breast cancer. Wow, it's higher than 10%. It's really high, yeah. And, you know, it's a, it's the most common cancer in women um, it is. throughout our lifetime. It is the most common cancer. And thankfully, as I mentioned, so many and women do do well. What is the prevailing theory for the cause? You know, the, the most common risk factor is being a woman and getting older. You know, I think that gene mutations do not account for the majority of breast cancers. But, you know, the and there's many risk factors that we ask about. But, the, you know, there's not a, uh, besides gender and and age, those are probably the two most sort uh-huh. of linked risks, risk factors, as it were, but unchangeable. But, you know, people that are, we ask about hormone replacement therapy and people and uh, you know when your first uh, menses was when 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 did you have your first child things like that those are probably minor impacts in terms of the, of the prevalence of breast cancer it is it is as you mentioned so common and I think I wanted to get back to your second question about a prophylactic other side mastectomy you'd ask that question mm-hmm. sort of in line with you, with your initial question about you know if you have mastectomy does that mean you don't need other therapies which I think we've just to summarize that you know the local therapy, meaning surgery to remove either the lump or the whole breast, you know, really does not have any bearing on the total body therapies that you'll need. Again, things like chemotherapy or tamoxifen, the aromatase inhibitors, things like that. Your other question about the other breast and whether to remove it, you know, I think is a a lot of patient preference. If somebody has a gene mutation, um, you know, people commonly know of the BRCA or the breast cancer gene, BRCA1 or 2, where the the lifetime risk is so high, even if you've had a breast cancer, of getting another breast cancer. And so in some women, they might elect to have the other breast removed to, you know, because of the high chance of getting another breast cancer. However, I think what you're alluding to, Richard, is that some women who might not even have a gene mutation or this this heavy predisposition to getting another cancer might elect to get a prophylactic mastectomy of the other side. And that is, you know, many factors I think go into that. Um, if someone doesn't have a gene mutation, that doesn't tend to be, uh, that, that tends to be something that we try to talk to and counsel patients about um, and thinking about, you know, how they view their risk. And, you know, sometimes people uh, would like to have a, you know, plastic surgery so that they can have some symmetry there too. And so I think there's a lot of factors that go into that. People's worry or risk about having another breast cancer, the worry of having to get mammograms and the anxiety that brings. Um, People might have a family history, but actually not have a gene mutation. And, you know, that weighs into that decision as well. Again, this idea of of plastic surgery. So I think there's a lot of things that go into that. We try to really understand, um, 
where a woman's at so that we can really help counsel her best on on whether that option to do a prophylactic mastectomy on the other side um, fits in line with her goals. I, I, I'm, I'm getting a much better understanding now of why you're both a breast cancer specialist, treatment specialist, and a palliative care specialist, because they really are complementary, as you're explaining. And I can see how first you go through the step of make, helping the patient make sense of their diagnosis and prepare for treatment. And then you help them understand the types of therapies, the tests and the scans, which they're going through. But at the same time, you're beginning to help them manage the symptoms. And that's the palliative care, the effects of treatment and so on. Isn't that correct? Yeah, I I think that's right, Richard. I think, you know, it's so rewarding to me. And what brought me really to this field was this ability to partner with somebody to really um, learn from them and hopefully help serve them in terms of, you know, having the best chance at doing well with their breast cancer. And in this other capacity, always making sure that I pay attention to what's most important to her to help her feel well and to live well and to live her best quality of life and to partner with my, like I said, I'm a palliative care doctor for my colleagues as well and and to help them really have their eye on and treating somebody, the, the whole picture, really treating the whole person. And actually what we always hope, and, and you had asked in the beginning, you know, were you, were you really in effect doing palliative care as it were in your practice? And I think we all hope, and we all hope that we enable people that are providers to be what we call primary palliative care providers. You know, there's like, we all do palliative care, right? Helping someone live well and live their best quality of life, paying attention to their goals and how they're coping and how they're feeling. We all hope to be doing that, right? And I think I'm also, you know, there's what we call primary palliative care, which means that we're all doing this work together. And then specialty palliative care, where I've had extra training so that I can really even go deeper there. And so, um, you know, I, I hope this, that my, I know that, you know, my training in palliative care helps hopefully inform what I do as a breast cancer doctor. And, you know, I, I think in so many ways helps inform how I approach life in general, too. I would think that the side effects, what I call unwanted complications of medicine, because they don't really happen on the side, they happen to the whole system, but we call them side effects, mm. which gives the impression they're on the side. Mm. It's sort of funny. But these unwanted complications of the medicine, such as the, that you list, nausea, fatigue, shortness of breath, weight, depression, and so on, in some ways, they're as difficult for the patient as having the cancer itself, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely, Richard. You know, I think that if somebody's feeling nauseated or if they're in pain, it's so hard moment to moment to to feel well. You know, you can't really go about your day if you're constantly in pain or nauseated. And so absolutely, I think that we think about the diagnosis itself, but, you know, the, the toll it takes on the body and the mind is so important to pay attention to. And even if somebody is on treatment for a very limited time, if they're getting, you know, four treatments of chemotherapy, I want to make sure I always tell people that we make sure that we help you feel well while you're on treatment. And if you've had a rough time with that, if someone's getting chemo, that first cycle of chemo, we're here to make the next cycle better. Or if I have somebody that's on a pill to block estrogen or these hormonal therapies, you know, I meet with people frequently to make sure that they're feeling well so that they can not just tolerate their therapies, but thrive and do well and and, and know that we're paying attention to how they're feeling so that they can adhere, meaning take the pills regularly and so that they can also thrive and do well. How difficult is it for you as a physician knowing that the treatment 
is causing such difficulty for the patient that the treatment itself is causing. Isn't that very hard on you? I think it's certainly hard. And, and to know, you know, I always share with patients, it's almost like we have this golden scale of life, you know, the, like the golden scale of justice, right? Now we're always trying to weigh benefits, the pluses, alongside the burdens, which are the risks, these, uh, you know, the secondary effects that you're talking about, the side of so-called side effects. We're always trying to weigh that, right? And this ideal world would be all the benefit, no side effects or toxicity. And that with any treatment, you know, we know that that doesn't exist, but what we're always striving for is giving someone that's going to be meaningful and to help reduce their risk of recurrence or to help them live longer in the case of advanced cancer. And then also to minimize the side effects. So if, you know, there are treatments that are going to cause side effects, can we lower that by giving them, you know, other strategies for managing those side effects? I, I think your question to me is, you know, it must be hard as an oncologist to administer the sort of therapies where there are burdens. And absolutely, you know, I, it, it is hard, of course, that these treatments cause these toxicities. And so what I'm always striving to do is be real clear with the patient that I want to hear what their experience is. I want to make sure that I'm helping in any way I can. Sometimes that means that we have to change the therapy or reduce the dose or delay things by a week if it's a chemotherapy, but that we're always trying to make sure that the balance is that the pluses are here, the minuses are there, meaning the pluses are outweighing the minuses that at the end of the day that we can really serve somebody. And so I think it takes a lot of really good communication with your provider and your team to make sure we are really um, having our mind and our, our, you know, our ears attuned to what's going on at home. Can you give a, a guesstimate or do you know what percentage of women who have been given a diagnosis of breast cancer suffer from depression? You know, depression's a really common thing in general in the United States, you know, even apart from having a cancer diagnosis. Yes. Um, so, you know, I don't know if I can quote the exact percentage of, you know, sort of whatever stage, either early stage or late stage, or if there's a difference there, but certainly just in the general population, depression is so prevalent Yeah. and that, you know, then given a diagnosis, even, even if it's situationally, meaning in that near term of the diagnosis, you know, how hard it is around that time, you know, in the situational um, of having just been handed a diagnosis and trying to think about the therapies. So I think um, on a practical level, what we do in our, our practice is that we're always asking patients, you know, how are you coping with things? How's your mood been? How are your spirits? You know, what's what are, what are things that you might be worried about if people are saying that they're feeling anxious or worried? Because I think that that is a really important topic to hit on and such a common symptom in general. What role does exercise and nutrition play in palliative care? I think exercise and nutrition have a role in cancer care period, and then certainly in palliative care as well. I think this idea of how do we help people be physically active and, you know, um, really try to be, have a focus on nutrition. We do know that there's a correlation with weight and um, recurrence. It doesn't mean that weight causes somebody to have a recurrence, but there is a correlation there. And so a focus also in our wellness visits and someone with um, breast cancer is to really, you know, ask people what their activity level is what they hope to be doing, you know, how can we help motivate them to do that? Um, and to also help with things like thinking about nutrition and strategies there. And so I think it's, it's asking us asking the questions, partnering with somebody to figure out what are strategies that will work for them, sometimes plugging them into resources. We have a what we call a lifestyle medicine clinic um, at, at Mass General where people focus on things like nutrition, exercise, and wellness. Um, and so we really do think that's such an important part of both palliative care and, and cancer care. 
I don't think there's much controversy about the fact that a stronger immune system is going to be a positive when dealing with, not just with cancer, but dealing with anything. Um, at the same time, 72% of the American public right now are obese or overweight, which means a significant percentage of the people that you see in your cancer practice, your cancer treatment practice, and your palliative care practice are either overweight or obese. How do you deal with that? And I mean, you know that the patient who is dealing with any of the stages of, of uh, breast cancer uh, would do better if they had a stronger immune system and if they were of normal weight, that you, that being overweight or obese is certainly going to make their recovery more difficult mm. or is going to give their system less energy to work on dealing with the cancer and the cancer treatment because right now what they're doing is they're sending oxygenated blood to fat. I mean, to put it quite bluntly, right? which means it, there's only a certain amount of energy that the system has. And if a certain amount of it is going to support uh, the, the, the excess weight, that energy can't be used for dealing with the, with the cancer or with the effects of the treatment. So isn't it directly in the patient's interest to lose that weight if possible? I think it's certainly in someone's best interest to lose the weight because because obesity is correlated with, you know, in general, you know, worse outcomes. And, and like I said, this association yes. um, with worse outcomes, I should say. And so I think that a focus on that is something that we also, you know, as, as oncologists, you know, have in our practice certainly to ask people. And I think there's this idea of learning more about where a person's coming from, right? I think that, you know, almost anyone can tell you you know, what it, what in a book is going to say about how to lose, what's the strategy to lose weight, you know, between exercise and eating healthy and high diet and, and um, you know, vegetables and fruits and lean meats if someone's eating meats. But I think the question often is almost taking a few steps back to understand what that person's experience with, with either weight loss or, you know, have they identified this as a goal for themselves? What things have they tried? What's been hard or frustrating? You know, what's worked for them in the past? So I think that there's this piece of, um, really connecting with somebody about what this experience has been for them from the cancer perspective, but also from their own journey with maybe weight gain and weight loss and obesity in some cases to try to really figure out how to move the needle for them. How do you really in some ways take a coaching model to help them get to a better place? Because we know that things like weight loss and behavioral um, uh, changes are really hard to make. And so it's a process over time, I think. And so it's really gratifying, certainly when you get to know somebody over time and you are there with them over these visits where they're working towards this goal and, and you know, sometimes having weight loss, sometimes just really being healthier and lowering their cholesterol and things like that. So I think there's not a, a perfect one size fits all to each person, Richard. Um, and I think this idea of just wrapping that into our cancer care, asking the questions, understanding what somebody's um, situation has been, what their goals are to help figure out what strategies we can work with to personalize how to help that person get to a better place. Yeah. I mean, in my experience, sometimes more often than not, just hearing from a physician, looking them directly in the eye, that you're jeopardizing your life 
by whether it's being overweight, smoking cigarettes, drinking too much alcohol, but just those words coming that you are jeopardizing your health and well-being by doing this can help move the needle. Not that the person can't look up the different methods, as you well pointed out, of losing the weight or doing mm. something, but the very fact that they're healing it from a, from a trusted, not just anybody, but a trusted authority figure often can can be extremely helpful. I think so. And I think the other really important um, point to underscore is just, you know, I want um, my patients to know that, you know, it, it's, it, it can be up and down and like a roller coaster with cancer care and, and weight loss, the weight loss journey, and that I'm here to support them, right? Like it's not a punitive thing. You know, if, if the scale hasn't moved and, you know, and, and they've had some setbacks, that's okay, right? Like we're here to strategize every time we meet so that people know that we're really on the same team to try to help them get to a better place is so important. Yeah. I mean, I, I tell that story about the importance of hearing in a physician because I had a, a, a situation in my own life where a close friend was morbidly obese and I kept telling him that he needed to do something about it and he should do something about it. It's going to jeopardize his health. And one time I slept over at his house and he had a four-story private home and he was on the top floor and I was down on the first floor. And then during the night I could hear him snoring and I knew that he was suffering from uh, you know, very severe apnea. Mm. And so in the morning I said to him, you better get some help right away because I could hear you snoring four floors away mm. and you could be in danger. So he went to Stanford the same day they did an emergency tracheotomy and and saved him. Wow. And while he was in there, a physician said to him, you know, your problem is you're so overweight that you had fatty buildup in your neck and that's what was, was uh, impeding your breathing. And my friend came back to me and he said, you know, all these years, I never listened to you because you're a clinical psychologist. But when the doctor in the hospital told me I was overweight, I looked in the mirror naked and I realized that you're correct. <laughs> Sometimes it takes just your own doctor saying something to you. Exactly. Really That's why I raised that. Things, you know, right? raised that question about you know mm -hmm. wh what you deal with because I imagine you're dealing with that, you know, a great deal. Sometimes you give a talk or a lecture or you have a conversation and then you leave and then you're in the car or you're walking home and you have a thought, gee, I wish I would have said, and it comes mm -hmm. to your mind. Mm -hmm. So what we're going to do is give you an opportunity to pause right now and think, what else would you like the public that are listening to this to know about your specialties of breast cancer and palliative care? What did, what did you miss? What are you might have forgotten? Or what is just something else you want to tell them? I like that question, Richard. I think it brings to mind, you know, what, what, what do we hope as clinicians that we share with patients if they could sort of get into our heads? And I think, you know, in some ways, the way that we opened with your approach to how you dealt with your diagnosis and this thinking that there's no time other than now. And so in this world of cancer care, I really hope that patients feel empowered to think about how they can live well now as we also look towards tomorrow as well. And so this idea of whether you have early stage breast cancer or late stage breast cancer, that we really want as your team to help you and your family live well, right? And so I think that our intent and our hope in writing this book was to help empower people with that nuts and bolts so that they have the information and that second layer of like, how do we help you live well? 
How do we help you tolerate your treatments and understand why you're being treated with these, the strategy that your team has chosen for you? How do we help you cope? How do we help you think about the future as well so that you can plan? So this idea really that your team wants to take care of the whole you you know, so that you can live well now. It's so important. Thank you. And thank you so much for being with us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. It's, it's been educational and almost overwhelming. And, and that's why it's so important, folks, that you really do go out and get this book, Living with Breast Cancer by Dr. Jennifer Shin and these, her other collaborators, David Ryan and Vicki Jackson. And the reason it's important is because more than 10% of the females in the United States are unfortunately going to get some form of breast cancer. You heard this from this prominent authority. Those are very high numbers. And what we're hearing from Dr. Jennifer Shin is this is a very complicated disease. This is not a simple thing where you get it, you get a treatment, you're done, and that's it. This is not pneumonia, folks, and pneumonias can be complicated in and of itself. It's complicated, which means there's a lot to learn, there's a lot to know, but there's also a great deal of help. You've heard how much help there's being offered and that the help is improving on a daily basis. And one of the things we didn't get to today, maybe for another time, is how much artificial intelligence is improving the treatment of breast cancer in early diagnosis. So there's a lot of help there, but it's complicated. So again, without belaboring, living with breast cancer by Dr. Jennifer Shin is something that you want to put into your library. Oh, thank you, Richard. You know, I think um, your last sentiments really encapsulate what I do share with patients on that first visit is that it feels so overwhelming in the beginning and that step by step things become elucidated, right? People, I we often joke, my patients will say, you know, I could actually have, have, have done the whole chemotherapy teaching session that you guys did those first few days because now I know it backwards and forwards and I understand things. And that's what's so rewarding, I think, in this role of being an oncologist and palliative care doctors, that we're educators and we're learning from our patients and trying to make sure that we translate all of this complex information so that it becomes less overwhelming, so people can feel empowered. And so I think at the end of the day, it, when you step into it, by nature, it's overwhelming. And that what we really hope to do is translate and break things down so that it, that it, become, it, that it makes more sense and that people become more comfortable with understanding what's going on and that we really translate this complicated world of cancer care and, and um, being able to feel well into something that really makes sense for that person. And so that's what we hope to do as a profession. That's what we're hoping to do in the book. And that, you know, I, and I really appreciate um, being able to have some time with you and your audience today. So thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure. And thank you all for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Please listen again next time, or you can go to our archive and listen to all the programs on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You can send me an email at info at Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. So until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm-hmm.